Welcome to The Criminologist, the podcast dedicated to educating and entertaining our listeners. We bring you subject matter experts from around the world and share the latest and greatest evidence-based practices and interventions to help individuals desist from a life of crime and delinquency. This podcast avoids stereotypes and biases in favor of the lived experiences of those we can best learn from. Now, please welcome the host of The Criminologist, Joseph Arvidsson. Hello and welcome to episode 140 of The Criminologist podcast. Happy to have you all with us today. Happy New Year to you all as we are dropping this episode on New Year's Eve of 2022 and what a year it has been. So many travels and adventures, so many new connections forged along the way. I cannot wait to share those with you in the coming year. We are wrapping up 2022 with a little experiment, if you will. We are all about pushing the envelope here on the Criminologist podcast, never falling into a rut, if you will. So this week, we are teaming up with another podcast to bring you a special crossover edition. Now, that podcast is entitled Criminal Behaviorology, and it is hosted by Timothy Joseph. Timothy Joseph is a board-certified behavior analyst and forensic psychologist. And he's also the host of his own podcast, as noted, entitled Criminal Behaviorology. Now, that podcast is a synthesis of criminology and behavior analysis. Tim reviews areas of importance to both fields and explores all sorts of new possibilities. I am so excited to be introducing a new format to the program, if you will, in which we have multiple subject matter experts on the show offering their views. Hopefully this is something we can explore more in the new year. Now, I noted multiple subject matter experts. Tim and I are going to be joined by friend of the Criminologist podcast, Dr. Jared Brown. Jared has been a frequent guest on the show in the past, but for newer listeners, allow me to briefly introduce Dr. Brown to you. Jared is a professor, trainer, researcher, and consultant with multiple years of experience teaching collegiate courses. Now, Jared is currently an assistant professor, program director, and lead developer for the Master of Arts degree in human services with an emphasis in forensic behavioral health and a second emphasis area in trauma, resilience, and self-care strategies for Concordia University right here in St. Paul, Minnesota. In addition to that experience, Jared has provided consultation services to a number of caregivers, professionals, and organizations pertaining to topics related to autism spectrum disorder, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, confabulation, suggestibility, trauma, and other life adversities, traumatic brain injury, and youth fire setting. As noted, Jared has made multiple appearances on the show in the past, and if you are a new listener, perhaps you're one of Tim's listeners coming in, listening to his podcast, being introduced to the Criminologist podcast, I encourage you to go back and check out those episodes from Dr. Jared Brown. You will not be disappointed. Now, as a child, I always wanted to teach myself how to juggle, but that was unfortunately a high-level skill I never quite mastered. Let's see how I do juggling multiple guests here. Please enjoy my conversations with Timothy Joseph and Dr. Jared Brown, and I will see you all on the other side. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. I am so pleased to be joined by Dr. Jared Brown and Timothy Joseph. Timothy is the host of Criminal Behaviorology Podcast. We're doing a crossover episode, I guess. Jared, you've been on the Criminologist Podcast multiple times, so our audience members are familiar with you. But nonetheless, go ahead and introduce yourself and what you're all about, and then... 
my audience and I are super excited to hear from Timothy, the host of his podcast, Criminal Behaviorology. So Jared, why don't you kick us off and then you can hand it off to Timothy for an introduction. You bet. Thank you, gentlemen. Honored to be here. And again, my name is Jared Brown. I am a professor. I, I do a lot of trainings for different groups, do a lot of consultation and really focus a lot of my work around topics that really fall under the umbrella of neurocriminology, trauma, adverse childhood experiences, a lot of topics related to forensic mental health, and go on a lot of podcasts, do a lot of work with adult clients, uh, do a lot of writing and various topics. So very honored to be here again and talk about a, a number of really interesting and complex topics today. Thank you, Jared. Great to have you back on the show. Tim, go ahead and introduce yourself. More to the point, introduce your podcast to my audience because I know we have a lot of shared interest and passion. So go ahead and give a shout out to yourself and your podcast. Joe, uh, very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I'm the host of the Criminal Behaviorology podcast. It's uh, the uh, combination of uh, criminology and behavior analysis, which is a field that I've studied for a little while. And I've uh, been on since 2018. Uh, one of the first episodes was about uh, hostage negotiation uh, and behavioral momentum, which uh, remains pretty popular uh, focus. So we're on, uh, we've had several different, a lot of variety of uh, different subjects about uh, uh, the true crime novel as a, as a, you know, uh, a work of literature I had with a, a good author. I've talked about a clockwork orange and uh, the realities of behavior analysis. So a variety of different things. And here I thought I was the only one, uh, not necessarily a, like there are plenty of true crime podcasts out there, but studying uh, forensic psychology, criminology in this way. And then one day, Jared uh, lets me know that uh, there's this whole other world out there of, of your podcast, Joe, and the work that Jared's doing. So people can find us on uh, Anchor Podcasts uh, Network, YouTube, Rumble, Locals, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Patreon. Uh, just search for us. You'll find us. And uh, I hope to uh, – it's – I've uh, had Jared on as a guest uh, on my own podcast uh, covering areas of uh, the Mycopedia, uh, uh, familicide, family mass murders, and uh, road rage, which uh, I think you've covered uh, some of the, those same topics on your so, uh, podcast. So it's been a good crossover, and I think this is a great way to send off a very productive year for this field uh, and for our mutual podcast, and I'm I'm glad that you gentlemen had me on here. Tim, I made a note to myself to circle back to A Clockwork Orange, one of my favorite films, and one that I've actually used in some of my undergraduate courses as a way to to get at um, some of the topics that we have in common. You mentioned Jared Brown has been on both of our shows, and yes, talked about a lot of those same topics: familicide, mysopedia. Road Rage. Jared, I think you've appeared on my show talking about all three of those as well. Why don't we loop you back in here, Jared? Again, viewing this as sort of a, a year-end uh, conversation. Um, some some heavy topics, but what were some of those things that are maybe misunderstood by the practitioner or you something you'd like to get across on, on these topics, uh, a bias or a, a misunderstanding that you'd like to to address what what i found helpful is really starting to look at criminal behavior antisocial behavior deviant behavior through a neurocriminology lens it's really helped enhance my understanding of the complexities as to why some people do really dangerous violent heinous confusing irrational things but on top of that I've been doing a lot of work now in the area of psychoneuroimmunology and neurocounseling as well. So I'm really pulling all of that literature into helping me just better understand when I can consult on cases, do trainings, do podcasts. So for neurocriminology, I know we've, we've done an episode on that together, but just in case your audience hasn't heard of that topic, it's basically... 
a subdivision of criminology, but it really pulls in neuroscience literature, behavioral genetics, biochemistry, psychophysiology. It takes into account prenatal factors, what was going on during pregnancy. That's a huge topic that I think is not taken into account enough. It also obviously considers social factors, family factors, but it really expands on why people do the things they do, really looking at some of the brain research as well as the prenatal literature, as well as nutrition literature. There's quite a bit of studies under the umbrella of neurocriminology that talk about nutritional deficits, malnutrition, in utero kind of micro deficiencies and how this can impact brain development. And if we truly study neurocriminology literature, we're going to be in a better position to understand human behavioral dysregulation. So why some clients become very dysregulated. If you want to learn more about unreasonable behavior, irrational behavior, the biological basis and their interactions with environmental factors that may contribute to antisocial or violent behavior, learn about neurocriminology literature. So it's basically taking the neurobio kind of roots of criminal behavior and dissecting that. But also we can't forget the social family factors and all of those other variables that are so important. When you study neurocriminology literature, there's tons and tons of topics you want to be aware of. Brain dysfunction is a big thing when we study this literature. So if you're working in the criminal justice arena with survivors of crime, violent perpetrators, people that are on long-term ISR, probation, parole, there's a high likelihood that they probably are dealing with some level of brain dysfunction if we believe the literature. Brain dysfunction can come from so many things. Extensive early childhood trauma can contribute to brain dysfunction. So we know a high percentage of clients in the criminal justice system have had a lot of tough stuff happen to them. So trauma can cause brain dysfunction. Half of people in prison, if not more, according to the research, have had a traumatic brain injury history as well. Traumatic brain injuries can come from a car accident, getting hit in the head, getting into fights. So traumatic brain injury, huge topic. Half of your clients probably have had a brain injury history. We need to be aware of executive dysfunction. Joe and I, we've talked about that several times. The majority of people in prison, in drug and alcohol treatment programs, people with severe mental health problems, have executive function impairments. And if they have executive function impairments, typically they're going to be more impulsive. It can really impact their flexible thinking. Working memory deficits fall under that umbrella something called inhibition, which is our internal pause button. If we don't have an internal pause button, what can happen? We're maybe more likely to commit domestic violence, child abuse, use drugs, engage in road rage, just make bad choices and decisions. People with low levels of inhibition, when they get frustrated and mad, they may not have that ability to pause and reflect and slow down. So another component of this we want to be aware of. Chronic long-term substance use and alcohol use can cause brain dysfunction. We know, unfortunately, a lot of people in prison have those kinds of histories. So, And brain dysfunction can be caused by nutritional deficiencies. So again, another reason why we want to be aware of that topic. The very nature of dealing with malnutrition or food insecurity early on in life has been linked to having more problematic outcomes later on in life. So Very important to understand that particular connection. Joe, I know we talked about like family violence, intimate partner homicide. I'll just say one thing about this. Let's look at that through a neurocriminology lens. What the research literature has shown, if you're working with perpetrators of intimate partner violence, there is a very good likelihood that they're dealing with some level of neurocognitive dysfunction, neurocognitive brain, frontal lobes, executive function. Under that umbrella, 
the research on neurocognitive dysfunction through a domestic violence lens points to the fact that perpetrators of domestic violence typically have lower levels of cognitive flexibility. Cognitive flexibility, think of that as your stick shift in your car. You got to shift when you go slower and faster. If you don't have that internal shift button, you can get stuck. You might ruminate. You might perseverate more. Inhibition problems have been noted. So that's self-control, self-regulation deficits. Processing speed deficits have also been noted in this population. So processing speed deficits could play out if you're running a cog skills group and you have someone in your group who has processing speed deficits, they may be slow to respond to your questions. They may get overwhelmed with multitasking. Think of it as a traffic jam or bottleneck in someone's brain. The takeaway point is, if you work with people that have that particular deficit, slow down, don't talk fast, let the person, give them time to process that information. Because if we go too fast and we're asking rapid fire questions, that can overwhelm their brain. Visual and attentional skills have also been noted to be at a deficiency level in people who commit intimate partner violence. So that in some cases could look like ADHD. It might be ADHD or it might not be, but it can look a lot like ADHD. Abstract reasoning deficits have also been noted. Why do you want to care about that topic? Because that is the ultimate higher order cognitive process human beings have. Abstract reasoning is connecting the dots, seeing the forest through the trees, um, planning for the future, being able to manipulate information in one's mind, like mathematics skills and problem solving and decision making. The very nature of a client who is court ordered to treatment for insight-based therapeutic approaches. And if they have abstract reasoning deficits, that's going to be very tricky because people with abstract reasoning deficits have a difficult time answering how and why questions. So if you're a probation officer, you ask a client a bunch of how and why questions. How are you feeling today? Why did you do that? Someone with abstract reasoning deficits may have a really hard time answering those questions. So if this person is court-ordered to treatment or completing some sort of anger management group, and they rely a lot on how and why questions, on the surface, it could look like that client is avoiding or being disrespectful or not wanting to be there when in fact their brain just doesn't allow them to process that information in that way. Cognitive empathy has also been noted to be deficient in intimate partner violent perpetrators. So be aware of empathy deficits. And we know empathy deficits are very common among offender-based populations. I'll talk a little bit more about empathy today. Emotional decoding problems have also been found to be more common in intimate partner violence offenders. So they might have a hard time decoding information in a social manner from other people. They may misread facial cues. So they may look at that other person and think that that person is very dangerous or very scary and their brain's telling them that when in fact their brain is decoding it wrong. So we want to be aware of that problem as well. And then working memory issues. So working memories are brain's post-it note. Clients with working memory issues oftentimes struggle with multitasking and being able to manipulate a lot of information in their mind. So someone with working memory deficits, if they don't write things down, they might not show up to their appointments on time with their probation officer. They may forget to go to treatment. They may not show up to court on time. And on the surface, it again, could look like the client's doing it intentionally when in fact it could be a brain-based neurocognitive deficit that results in technical violations and then that revolving door of in and out of jail and probation violations continues until someone takes a step back and says, what's going on here? Maybe this person needs an evaluation. Something is not working. I'll park it there for a minute. That's kind of a general overview of neurocriminology through an intimate partner violence lens. Jared, I know that um, when 
you've talked about neurocriminology in the past on my podcast. The feedback from my audience has been they want more, 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 particularly my my corrections folks, those probation and parole officers. I'm I'm equally pleased that the science is there and that we're learning about it. But then also a little disappointed that it's just not part of our working lexicon uh, in corrections, the neurocriminology, the brain science manifestations you talked about, whether it's executive dysfunction and all those ties to impulsivity, things we see in our population. So I was really appreciative of that. Tim, from your perspective and or the perspective of your audience, what were some of those takeaways that you've you've gotten from the knowledge that Jared has presented to you and your audience? Yes, the, the neurocriminology uh, information is really valuable. We've uh, on the podcast, we've covered domestic violence before, often on um, uh, like a behavioral economics viewpoint about like so leaving the leaving the uh, abusive relationship, how there may be actually punishment factors that come along with that. And uh, along with learning history of uh, and the norms in society that may offer punishments or, or rewards for staying or leaving for tolerating, tolerating abuse. So it's a, the, the neurocriminology side of it, which I'm not as familiar with, but that ought to be, uh, made more aware i think it could be more aware like the way jared is is able to to uh discuss it and articulate it well ought to be made more aware to the public and also some uh i believe some of these uh behavioral factors the things from the environment that would uh make the uh make the whole phenomenon make a little more sense to the public about why there is why there is so much domestic violence why it's seen in so many different classes and different groups. It's seen in, uh, you know, uh, every kind of nationality. And in every community, there's a domestic violence task force collecting data on the patterns that we see and how we could alter those patterns and uh, uh, work toward uh, an intervention that is uh, much more effective in reducing domestic violence than we currently have. Yeah, Tim, we're kindred spirits because I also appreciate that that holistic approach um, that that you're advocating, looking at everything from those environmental factors to the to the brain based factors to, and I come from a risk need responsivity background. Like you said, those those perceived cost and rewards for engaging in behavior arising out of the whole social learning theory. Um, school of thought. And again, anything that, that you or I could do, part of my my passion is really just informing the public and knocking down some of these biases and prejudices we have around justice-involved individuals, whether it's domestic violence or, or anybody um, who's on that criminal uh, trajectory. So we can benefit them and, and society. Tim, I already talked about a clockwork orange and my audience knows I'm a huge <laughs> movie buff on top of everything else. Um, I was looking at some of your past installments in particular, your October, 2022 installment of your podcast entitled more horror movies equals less crime. Um, you did an analysis of movies on crime reduction. Let's, let's unpack that and have some fun with that, with that topic perhaps. Yeah, I'm a movie buff too, and I want to cover more things about that. But I try and have a a Halloween special. It's my favorite holiday, so I have something. So we we've covered uh, in years past um, uh, about uh, cannibalism. Uh, you know, who knew? And then uh, a couple of other topics uh, related to Halloween. Uh, but I did cover uh, a 2009 uh, article. Uh, that had to do with uh, uh, horror movies actually reducing crime, and the and the reason is, although they, uh, I would, uh, I would uh, um, just settle it down to uh, a replacement behavior, uh, essentially that it reduces uh, the time drinking, it reduces the uh, the the other behaviors in the environment that uh, lead to violent encounters, and that was pretty much the conclusion of this 2009 article. We've covered uh, some different areas about uh, Halloween. I, I had um, 
a couple of years ago, I had a uh, uh, issue about uh, uh, resurgence, which is a concept in behavior analysis that's pretty pertinent to things like substance abuse, crime. We covered that because uh, uh, one person had written an, uh, uh, an, a humorous article about zombies and behavior analysis, and he used the metaphor of resurgence. Yeah, about uh, yeah about uh, Ken Latal. Uh, he's a really well known behavior anal- uh, analyst, um, but he and he's done a lot of work in what's called uh, OBM, organizational behavior management work, to help companies work. But uh, resurgence about um, uh, change in behavior, where you 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 would have behavior A pretty well reinforced, and then you reinforce behavior B as a replacement, and then you stop reinforcing. Re- behavior B, you don't reinforce anything. And then A comes back again. So uh, it was the metaphor of the zombies. And we could see that with uh, substance use, with crime, with delinquency, uh, focusing. It, it was, uh, I, I think it was a good, uh, he was in Japan and I just had to send him the questions and read read the answers. But he, he gave some very good answers. Does uh, more horror movies mean less crime? And it was essentially, you know, the the colloquial or the common understanding is that the horror movies increase crime uh, because of the violent content. But their analysis showed uh, it may have a reduction effect and it may have to do with the the power of a replacement behavior. So the, the people are watching the movies. They're getting together in a social context they're not staying at home drinking or doing other things that uh, are part of the cycle that may lead to criminality. So it's one piece of the puzzle, but uh, I I think it was a good overview of the surprising results we'll get when we do a detailed analysis of criminality and uh, a particular variable. So uh, I, I enjoyed it. I um, it's one of the, uh, I prefer to have guests, but sometimes it's just on my own and, uh, and the guests are in the form of literature or, uh, answering questions over the email. So, you know, I'm glad that you like that one. I liked several of yours, uh, of your episodes, uh, the one about, uh, make time count, uh, with Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Lay. That was, I think that's on along similar lines about using the technology to reduce the, the features in the environment that lead to criminality or failed probation, parole. Uh, it was a very interesting, I mean, I, I wish I'd had him as a guest because uh, it's a very interesting uh, set of ideas in that one. Yeah, Jonathan is brilliant and really a visionary. Um, and again, I encourage folks to listen to that episode as well for some of the great software he's developing. I want to stick with the movie theme for just a little bit more Tim, because I love, again, meeting kindred spirits. I read an article years ago, and I'm not going to do it justice, but it wasn't necessarily looking at the correlation between horror movies and crime, but rather it did an examination of movie trends over the last 80 years, let's say. And it, it drew comparisons between when vampire movies are really popular in Hollywood versus when zombie movies are really popular. And their thesis was that um, zombie movies get really popular historically, at least when the nation is, is going through some type of like a war, for example, or some type of crisis where, where the populace embraces more of this sort of bunker mentality. So for example, they went back and they looked at the first Gulf war back in the early nineties when everybody was staying in the home and worried, you know, psychologically. It was like, okay, we want to bunker up. And and again, we can relate to hiding in the house from the zombies. Whereas vampire movies take off during, for example, like the dot-com era or when people are out and exploring and, and, and taking more risk. And it really looked at the fact that, you know, the vamp- vampire lore is really based on, if you really break it down, to be a victim of the vampire, it's really about risk takers, whether it's intravenous drugs or, uh, let's say, risky sexual behavior. You're only going to get bit by the vampire if you invite them into your home, right? Um, and again, we take more of that risk-taking behavior during during the boom times, so to speak. So it was an interesting uh, analysis of why horror movies are popular and, and, and when they're popular. Um, I love talking about the media as well. Um, you mentioned Halloween, Tim. I did a, I did a Halloween episode. I've done a couple now where I'll take a famous movie character, whether it's 
the Wolfman or Frankenstein, and I'll do, for example, a correctional risk assessment and try to do some case planning around the werewolf or the monster based on their risk factors. Um, But again, sticking with the media, and I guess I could address this to you, Jared, as well. What is something that the media consistently gets wrong about justice-involved individuals? Or if if there's one thing that either of you could set the record straight on uh, with the populations that we interact with, what would that be? I don't think they hardly ever talk about prenatal factors. And again, that's not, I can understand why they don't, because they probably don't have access to a lot of those records. But anytime someone commits a heinous crime or serial offending, my mind instantly goes to what happened in utero. And I'm not saying it always happened, but you've got to look toward in utero factors. That is a good starting point. Anyone working in the criminal justice arena, the forensic arenas, if you're not taking into account prenatal factors, you're missing a huge, huge component that helps us better understand why some people do the things they do. Behavioral genetics is a whole line of literature that's not talked about too, but if you can understand behavioral genetics, there are so many studies that have been published on genetics and criminal behavior. And I don't know who coined this, but it's said so much in the literature that genetics loads the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. So it's not going to be genetics that causes a crime. And a lot of times it's not just going to be the environment. You bring all that stuff together. Now we have a recipe for problematic behavior. And that's why I look through that neuro, bio, psycho, social lens that also includes behavioral genetics and prenatal factors. And most of the, the most complex cases I've consulted on, there are so many moving parts. People are looking for a short, quick answer. How do we fix this? And I think some people get frustrated that there is no quick fix to some of these things because we are talking about a lot of moving complicated neurobiological processes that are going on. Just for example, I'll give you one, glucose dysfunction. Look at some of the literature on that. That'll blow your mind away. That's a whole other segment in and of itself. Glucose dysfunction has been shown to be much more prevalent among violent offenders. So there might be a possible biochemical variable at play here too. I'm so glad you brought up the prenatal issue, Jared, and I've learned so much from you during the coursework that I've I've undergone at Concordia University, and I've even commented on my amazement that professionals who are dealing with a quote-unquote adult in the in the criminal justice system aren't even looking back into their clients' juvenile past, much much less their neonatal um, history. I could, uh, before I throw it over to you, Tim, for your response, I guess my, one of my issues with the media is that, and I get it, it's their business model, but, you know, we tend to look at outliers and extremes. And I've, in my career in criminal justice, I've seen a lot of, of, of heinous offenses. And I know that there's, there's truly bad people out there, but it's that old axiom we hear it in the media about if it if it bleeds it leads and the public is then presented with such a distorted image of um the, the typical person who is on uh, on that criminal trajectory and who we're trying to get off that trajectory um but we we tend to look at the again you know the monsters the the Jekyll and Hyde's um on the extreme end and and form an opinion based on that. Tim, what about you? If you could correct one thing in the media or you were running your own media um, movie studio or network, <laughs> what's what's something that you're saying, hey, get off my side? Um, if there's one thing, and this has been discussed before at some of the behavior analytic conferences, is to stop uh, displaying the names and pictures and manifestos of mass shooters and, and mass uh, murderer cases. In fact, probably less coverage uh, would be more effective. I think a more of like what you describe a detailed analysis sometime after the fact, collection of data, 
Um, you know, if, if the public needs to be kept safe, then, uh, they would display information, but just to, uh, have, uh, the images, the recordings, the written statements, uh, may only be a reinforcement for the next mass murderer. Uh, they call, they would call them in common parlance, uh, copycat killings, but to, uh, uh, to put this information out there, especially in whole form where you actually have the perpetrator making a videotape statement or uh, similar recordings and things like that. Um, uh, it, it, the only purpose it may serve is to reinforce that behavior in the future. So I think it's, a, it's an area where the media can make a difference by not displaying certain kinds of information. They, they already have these kind of policies when it comes to, uh, you know, wartime or sensitive uh, government information. The same thing can kind of be applied to uh, criminal cases of, of mass murder and mass shooting um, as a way to uh, as a way to reduce the potential of it in the future. So that that would be one thing I would definitely tell the media, um, the media to stop doing and to alter in their coverage of these cases. Yeah, exactly. Or even I was thinking as you were speaking to him, uh, we tend to, again, celebrate failures in the criminal justice system. Just as a vocation, we tend to do that. We look at relapse, reoffense, probation violation. We don't do enough celebrating successes. Uh, and again, it's almost as if you were the the public relations firm for a hospital, but you only talked about your fatalities versus all the great work you're doing there. We never celebrate successes. We rarely, I should say, celebrate um, successes on probation, parole, corrections. We just tend to fixate on, on, on when it goes bad. Yeah. Jared, again, I know you've, you've, you've consulted and advised, uh, on a variety of, of to a variety rather of, of human services professionals. Is there one topic or one subject out there that you feel it, it crosses so many of those various fields that, again, if you had one silver bullet, what would one topic be that would be the most beneficial for, all of them to be made aware of. For example, you just mentioned the perils of excess sugar. I know on the show in the past, you and I have had great conversations around HPA access information, stuff like that, or again, low self-regulation. Is there one topic, Jerry, that cuts across all those human services fields that if you could in 2023, tell them all, okay, learn 101 about this topic? Trauma. Trauma? <clears throat> Trauma. Yeah, that's that's the easy one. Trauma can come from prenatal factors, early childhood trauma, a car accident, COVID-19 is a collective trauma, racism, being in prison is traumatic, being the survivor of domestic violence, growing up in poverty is a type of trauma. Food insecurity is a trauma. Trauma can wreak havoc on our brain, our body, our emotions, the way in which we learn and process information. And we know from the adverse childhood experiences literature that even if you're working with adults or even older adults, maybe they haven't had trauma happen to them in 40 years. Those experiences of early childhood trauma can really shape them and impact them for the rest of their life. That's especially the case if they haven't had proper support, services, treatments, interventions. And it can change them neurologically. It can change their brain. It can change them biochemically. So we can have premature aging, which is called allostatic load. It can impact their sleep, their gut, the way in which they, they eat and how their brain turns off their, their signals to stop eating. Extensive childhood trauma is a factor for some cases of obesity. It's been linked to criminality in some cases. The majority of people in prison have had extensive traumas. And I'm not talking about one kind of trauma, usually more collective, complex, developmental. And if you're a human, you've had trauma happen to you. I don't know how you couldn't. But for people in the criminal justice system, even violent offenders, you got extensive trauma which can fracture attachment patterns, which can impact executive function, and the list goes on. And you can have such a trickle-down effect of neurobiopsychosocial deficits that 
make it almost impossible for some people to get out of the criminal justice system unless the professionals truly understand the complexities of these topics. Jared, we've been plugging our podcast, each other's podcast on the show. You brought up trauma. You've developed a great program at Concordia University. So why don't you give a shout out to your trauma resilience and self-care programs at Concordia? Yeah, we have a, a Master of Arts degree in Human Services with an emphasis in trauma, resilience, and self-care strategies. It's a fully online program. It's 36 credits. Each class is three credits. There's 12 classes in the program. It is an asynchronous program. And it's very multidisciplinary. The program was developed to bring in professionals and people who are interested in getting into a a host of fields, human service, social service, criminal justice, mental health, people working in advocacy, people working in the courts. So it's really for the helping professional. And what I found helpful, we can bring all these people together. Lots of learning happens in the course room from all the other students as well, because students come from all backgrounds, all over the country. We'd learn so many things from each other. So that's kind of a broad spectrum overview. Traditional grad program too, it's gonna be a lot of reading, of course, and lectures that are pre-recorded and and papers and and things of that nature. But we dig into some really interesting and heavy duty topics. Now you're gonna learn about trauma, of course, all the dimensions, but we take it a quite a bit deeper, I think, than like other programs. We're going to learn about the HPA access, alexithymia, theory of mind, all these topics that I don't think most professionals have ever even heard of or had trainings in. So you'll be in a better position to understand and work with clients, perpetrators, survivors. And if we can look through that trauma lens, we're in a much better position. And one class in the program too is really dedicated to the helping profession, self-care, empathy fatigue, burnout, compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, those kind of topics as well. I'm about midway through the program, Jared, and yes, I can attest to it. And the theory of mind stuff, if someone wants to go down a a Google rabbit hole, do yourselves a favor and start learning all about theory of mind. Tim, as we reflect back on the year 2022, we're framing this as a year-end review. Was there a, a guest that you had on the show last year or a topic that uh, was really more impactful than you thought it was or or something that really resonated with you last year? Uh, in, in the course of 2022, uh, first of all, I'll give credit uh, to Jared for uh, for the three episodes that he was uh, a part of. And, uh, I did get some really good responses from that, uh, on the, on the different sites that we have, um, a lot of popularity there on, uh, especially, uh, on, uh, familicide, which I spoke to some people about, about the different kinds of family annihilators covered the John List case, um, and, uh, also a, f- a few other prominent cases. And, and Jared, as we've already heard from, talked a lot about the, the different variables involved. So, uh, I, I enjoyed that episode. It got a lot of good responses. In addition, uh, I had a friend of mine, Joe Wyatt, um, forensic psychologist, and, uh, he got on there and he talked about the, uh, the McMartin sex abuse trial that took place. Uh, let's see, this would have been in the 1980s, if you're familiar with that. And that is, uh, that may be, uh, connects with our, our discussion about the, the media. And uh, it was a group of people that were uh, unfairly tried in the court of public opinion. So, uh, and um, uh, Dr. Joe Wyatt did an analysis of uh, the, what's called the operant seeing where people tend to see what they want to see the, the confirmation bias that takes place when there's a lot of pressure from the media and interpretation of events when it could be seen uh, as a perfectly innocent behavior and phenomenon in one light. If you want to look at it in another way, uh, it can be seen as proof of guilt. So that one was a a particularly popular episode. um, And uh, I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed having Joe on there quite a bit. 
Tim, can I piggyback off that? Yes. I do a ton of trainings and I've written several articles on suggestibility. Mm -hmm. And I'm very familiar with that case and some of those other famous cases. So when you study that topic, learn about suggestibility, learn about memory conformity, Mm -hmm. memory distrust syndrome, which was developed by Gisley Johnson. He's kind of the world renowned expert, I would say, in suggestibility. Mm -hmm. Learn about confabulation, which is false memory creation. Mm -hmm. Those are just a few things. And that, and the misinformation effect, look at some of Elizabeth Loftus work. Mm -hmm. She's, Definitely a guru too, an eyewitness suggestibility and how just changing one word in your questioning, she in her work talked about like, did you bump into the car or did you smash into the car? Just changing the word smash versus bump, that can absolutely change the way in which we remembered it. If we witnessed it with a group of people or did we witness it alone Did we witness it with people we trust and believe their memory? Do we have a memory that we don't trust? So now we rely on other people and we rely on other people maybe who are in a position of power or uniform because they look credible, but maybe they're not. Those are all some of the things that came out of some of those cases and false confessions and all of the fascinating false information or false memory creation, all of those things really came out of some of those early cases in the in the eighties. And learning history too, because uh, what was in Joe Wyatt's paper was uh, that the parents of uh, the children brought in an anthropologist to uh, determine if tunnels, secret tunnels were under the uh, daycare center. It's where we're alleged where they'd done this kind of ritual abuse. And uh, the defense said there are no tunnels. This is just a building. And so they brought in an, uh, uh, an archaeologist to analyze. And he said, yeah, I discovered filled in tunnels. Well, this area had once been like a lot of things outside a large city had been a rural area. And uh, years and years ago, they had trash pits. You didn't have garbage trucks coming all the way out to pick up your garbage. You built these, you dug out these trash pits and put garbage in there. And then you dug up another one. But on a, on a, on an analysis of, of sonar, well, those look like filled in tunnels. Uh, <laughs> and then that was entered as proof. Oh, uh, now we found the tunnels. And then this is a, this is a PhD uh, archaeologist giving testimony, um, and, and doing a scientific paper declaring that, uh, tunnels had been built, uh, underneath, uh, the McMartin, uh, uh, daycare center. Uh, and this is what the public saw. And this is still talked about. There's, uh, people analyzing this case and they'll come up and say, yeah. Uh, later uh, scientific determination says that there were tunnels. Yeah, that is fascinating. I remember the McMartin school case when it rolled out. I guess I'm kind of dating myself there, but but to your point, Tim, it's just fascinating to think this happened in the 1980s, not not the 1880s. This isn't the Lizzie Borden case that we can look back on and think, well, we were all a little bit collectively naive or or not as advanced in in our worldview and science. This was just as recently as the 80s, and like you said. We, we that was all entered into the trial. Yeah, just amazing. Like you said, if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. Let's not look back. Let's look forward. What's on the horizon for the two of you? Look into your crystal balls. Do you have any projects or plans for 2023 that you'd like to share with the audience? I am developing a one-year certification program for the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies on becoming a neurocriminology-informed professional, and that'll be hopefully launching next month, and we'll be releasing one three-hour training every month that's on demand. It'll be a 36-hour continuing education program that takes a deep, deep dive into all things neurocriminology. And in January, too, I'm actually doing a three-hour continuing education workshop for a group out of state online where I'm going to be looking at really all things family homicide. I know we talked about familicide. Going to be digging into each of the typologies. So my goal for 2023 
focusing primarily on neurocriminology and secondarily on all things family homicide, domestic homicide, intimate partner homicide. Keep us posted on that, Jared. As noted, my audience was all over the neurocriminology um, content that you've been sharing with us. So I would, I'm certain, be able to steer some students uh, your way. Tim, what about you? Anything, uh, anything coming up in the next year that you're excited about sharing? Uh, in January, uh, I'm I'm uh, leading the. Uh, we've got a series uh, webinar series on novel uses of applied behavior analysis, and we are going to be focusing on law enforcement. We'll have a couple good guest speakers. One on uh, training the police to deal with. Uh, uh, people in the public who may have autism uh, and also uh, just analysis of crime from a behavior analytic point of view, uh, have a little tr- getting that together and hope to have it uh, in January. Um, I'm, I ended up adopting uh, a, uh, the uh, Facebook uh, page on uh, the Sylvia Likens case. It's also uh, uh, have covered that, I think, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago. Uh, case in Indiana, um, which a lot of people have had interest in. And uh, I'll be uh, uh, completing uh, w- with all uh, with all prayers involved, I'll be completing my doctoral program. And I hope to be able to uh, ultimately get a uh, journal uh, of applied behavior analysis and uh, uh, criminology uh, put together that uh, we can you know take articles. There's a lot of interest in the area. People are having uh, trouble getting it published. Uh, in the right journal, and and we hope to be able to to uh, meet that need by having a journal uh, focused on uh, crime and uh, applied behavior analysis. Tim, are there any school programs on applied behavioral analysis and criminology combined? Uh, there, uh, Saint Joseph University has a a, a focus on it, and uh, at uh, Chicago School of Psychology, they have a they've got an ABA program. Um, but right now, uh, it's, it is pretty limited and just getting education is, um, is a bit of a struggle and also getting supervision, uh, if you want to become a behavior analyst and specialized in the area of, of corrections, probation, parole, criminology, criminal justice, it becomes a little bit difficult to, um, to be able to get a supervision to get that experience. And in the special interest group, uh, Association for Behavior Analysis International Special Interest Group, um, which I am uh, part of the public relations director for, we've made a little bit of progress in connecting the students into these areas where they can get job experience and get supervision work um, in the combined area of these two fields. It's the uh, Forensic Behavior Analysis Supervision Group, uh, Special Interest Group with ABAI, which also has its own uh, Facebook group uh, named after it. Wonderful. A lot of exciting things coming up in 2023. Jared, you and I seem to always be attached at the hip, but Tim, I really look forward to uh, maintaining and uh, enjoying this relationship moving forward. I love meeting um, kindred spirits, and I can't thank you both for can't thank you both enough for being on the show. Jared Brown from Concordia University, as well as APHIS, and Timothy Joseph, producer and host of the Criminal Behaviorology Podcast. I will leave relevant links in the episode description of this program for. Tim's podcast, as well as information on Jared's aforementioned trauma, resilience, and self-care strategies program at Concordia University. Gentlemen, have a happy new year and anything to say in closing? Well, Joe, you can't leave us hanging. What do you got going on for 2023? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you caught me. That's, you know, when we, when in facilitation world, when we throw out an icebreaker to sort of um, get the students uh, blood flowing, we often say to ourselves, boy, don't come back to me with that icebreaker because I don't want to have to answer that myself. Um, <sighs> I'll be just continuing my um, my consult- consultant- consultancy work, and I've got some fun travels um, coming up, which folks can follow my, my, globe, my globe trotting on LinkedIn. And, of course, just bringing more folks like you together um, 
on the podcast. I, I, I liked this format of bringing in more than one guest. So my goal for 2023 is to have the show morph into more of a, more of a panel discussion where in addition to, for example, bringing in folks with lived experience or bringing in academics or subject matter experts or practitioners, maybe getting a cross section of each to get maybe some, um, some opposing opinions or views on these certain topics, uh, but just to make it a more enriching experience for the audience. So that's what I've got on tap for, for 2023. Very exciting. Thank Excellent. you, gentlemen. Honored to be Excellent. here with you guys. Okay, gentlemen, have a happy new year. Tim, go ahead. Yeah, Excellent. Excellent program, Joe. Appreciate it. And I hope we can do this again. Yeah, let's, let's plan on it, Tim. I love these crossover episodes. Let's plan on it for sure for 2023. Absolutely. All right. Take care, gentlemen. A robust conversation. So happy to have brought those two individuals together for you on the Criminologist podcast. As noted, please check the episode description of this show for relevant links related to all of the fascinating things that Dr. Jared Brown is involved with up to and including, of course, his fantastic programs at Concordia University in St. Paul revolving around trauma, resilience, and self-care strategies. And of course, please check out Timothy Joseph's podcast, Criminal Behaviorology. I'll leave a link for that podcast as well. But again, you got a flavor of what Tim's all about. I think you agree. You will agree, rather. We are kindred spirits. If you like this podcast, you're going to love Tim's podcast as well. And I would like to welcome Timothy's listeners who may be listening in for the first time to this podcast, go back and check out some of our other interviews, not just with Dr. Jared Brown. We also bring you subject matter experts from around the world, from academia, practitioners in corrections and human services, in addition to those with lived experiences to share their unique insight so that we may all learn from those we will be back next week with a fresh episode in the meantime you may contact the show or reach out to us through our website the paragon group llc.com for training or presentations as to core correctional skills program design or of course the topic of desistance from crime if you have questions or comments as to this podcast, feel free to contact the show via our email at thecriminologistpodcast at gmail.com. That's thecriminologistpodcast at gmail.com. Remember to follow us through our Facebook and Instagram pages at The Criminologist Podcast. New fun images are being added all the time to those feeds. You don't want to miss out. The Criminologist Media Group is also on Twitter. Go ahead and give us a follow at Crim Media Group. That's C-R-I-M Media Group. You may also connect with me, Joseph Arvidson, on LinkedIn and follow both the Criminologist Podcast and the Paragon Group on our LinkedIn pages. Hey, lastly, if you've not already done so, check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Criminologist, for additional content as to the themes of this program. Merchandise is now available Visit us at the Paragon Group, LLC.com. Look for the tab entitled Shop, and you'll get details as to how you can secure your own criminologist coffee mug, refrigerator magnet, or pen for the office or home. And if you believe in what we're doing on the program, if you're part of the movement, please spread the word. Tell a friend or a coworker or a colleague about us. Ask them to subscribe to the podcast, and of course, do so yourself if you've not already done so. And always remember, folks, there's no them, there's only us. Trauma can come from prenatal factors, early childhood trauma, a car accident, COVID-19 is a collective trauma, racism, being in prison is traumatic, being the survivor of domestic violence, growing up in poverty is a type of trauma. Food insecurity is a trauma. Trauma can wreak havoc on our brain, our body, our emotions, the way in which we learn and process information. And we know from the adverse childhood experiences literature 
that even if you're working with adults or even older adults, maybe they haven't had trauma happen to them in 40 years, those experiences of early childhood trauma can really shape them and impact them for the rest of their life. Spread the word. Tell a friend or a coworker or a colleague about us. Ask them to... <laughs> Blooper Reel. The Criminologist Podcast is a production of the Paragon Group, LLC. For speaking engagements, interviews, program design, or training opportunities, please visit us at theparagongroupllc.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can find more content and videos on our YouTube channel, The Criminologist. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Both The Criminologist Podcast and The Criminologist Channel are brought to you by The Criminologist Media Group. Be sure to give us a five-star review, and thanks for listening.